Funds for Bookworm are provided in part by Lannan Foundation. From KCRW and KCRW.com, I'm Michael Silverblatt, and this is Bookworm. David Foster Wallace is one of America's greatest writers. It was an enormous tragedy when, three years ago, he took his own life, leaving behind an unfinished novel, The Pale King. The book was prepared for publication by his longtime editor and will be published tomorrow, April 15th, a date made significant by the fact that the book is about the IRS and the people who work there. Today's program was recorded in Santa Fe, New Mexico, following a Lannan Foundation tribute to David Foster Wallace. Now, on to my guests. David Lipsky, who is the author of Although, of course, You End Up Becoming Yourself, which is a record and transcript of a road trip with David Foster Wallace when the book Infinite Jest was about to appear, and Rick Moody, who not only was an admirer and friend of David's, he shares an editor with David. The editor they share is Michael Peach, and I was a friend of David's and greatly honored to know him. I'm going to begin by asking Rick to read the opening of The Pale King, Rick Moody. Past the flannel plains and blacktop grafts and skylines of canted rust, and past the tobacco-brown river overhung with weeping trees and coins of sunlight through them on the water-down river, to the place beyond the windbreak where untilled fields simmer shrilly in the a.m. heat, shatter cane, lamb's quarter, cut grass, sawbriar, nut grass, jimson weed, wild mint, dandelion, foxtail, muscadine, spine cabbage, goldenrod, creeping charlie, butterprint, nightshade, ragweed, wild oat, vetch, butcher grass, invaginate volunteer beans, all heads gently nodding in a morning breeze like a mother's soft hand on your cheek. An arrow of starlings fired from the windbreak's thatch, the glitter of dew that stays where it is and steams all day. A sunflower, four more, one bow and horses in the distance standing rigid and still as toys, all nodding. Electric sounds of insects at their business, ale-colored sunshine and pale sky and horals of cirrus so high they cast no shadow. Insects, all business all the time. Quartz and chert and schist, and chondrite iron scabs and granite, very old land. Look around you, the horizon trembling, shapeless. We're all of us brothers. 
Some crows come overhead then, three or four, not a murder, on the wing, silent with intent, corn-bound for the pasture's wire beyond which one horse smells at the other's behind and the lead horse's tail obligingly lifted. Your shoes brand incised in the dew, an alfalfa breeze, socks burrs, dry scratching inside a culvert. Rusted wire and tilted posts more a symbol of restraint than a fence per se. No hunting. The shush of the interstate off past the windbreak. The pastures' crows standing at angles, turning up patties to get at the worms underneath, the shape of the worms incised in the overturned dung and baked by the sun all day until hardened, there to stay. Tiny vacant lines and rows and insect curls that do not close because head never quite touches tail. Read thee. Rick Moody, reading section one of David Foster Wallace's The Pale King. Now, for many of us, David Foster Wallace's death was tragic not only because of the fact that he was beloved and capable of behaving in a manner so beautiful as to exalt the human, his writing was clearly the writing of one of the American voices that will define writing in our time. So to have this book in our hands is a joyous thing. I'm going to ask you, would you dare, David, to try and describe the book? Uh, the book is about people um, arriving at their jobs at work and then mentally arriving there uh, some, at some point after their physical selves arrive there, and then using that sort of mental arrival at work as a way to understand and find or arrive at a way to live their lives, too. They work at a giant um, IRS data processing facility, which is in the middle of Illinois. And it is, as people keep pointing out to them, it is not the most exciting and energizing work. And, um, and they all develop different strategies for finding ways to uh, endure and then enjoy that work. Let's face it, we all know the quote, only two things are certain, death and taxes. We've already encountered David's death, and now he's giving us taxes. <laughs> and there are many things we want to know about taxes, but that question, what kind of men are taxmen? And so most of these people, we meet them as children. These chapters sort of silently, inherently answering the question, what kind of people come to work for the IRS? We're seen in the moment of their trauma formation, <laughs> often as not. And because David was a specialist in trauma becoming hilarious, trauma becoming inevitable, boredom becoming funny, this book takes those strategies and gives us these people who otherwise are faceless. We've never known them. They are watching us in some sense. We report to them. Um, Rick, who was your favorite character? And tell us more or less something about him. Well, 
My favorite character in The Pale King might be named David Foster Wallace, in fact, who makes a rather profound and sudden appearance partway into the book with an author's preface that certainly does not appear in the normal prefatory position in the manuscript, and who then advances the argument that he, David Foster Wallace, author of the very books by David Foster Wallace, was himself actually an IRS employee at a certain point in his life, a fact about which I have grave doubts, Uh, (laughs) but who nonetheless becomes a, a recurrent and persistent character in the book throughout. I think, in a way, a lot of the book is sort of um, autobiography in the oddest possible form. Um, There's a 100-page novella in the middle of the book narrated by one irrelevant Chris Fogel, Fogel, irrelevant Chris Fogel, who uses the first person exactly like the David Foster Wallace uh, character does in the book, and their voices have great similarities. Mm -hmm. In fact, the difference between them would seem to be that the David Foster Wallace character uses footnotes and uh, Fogel does not. But there's a very interesting passage in Fogel's quite spectacular 100-page novella where he talks about taking a certain variant on dexedrine called Obatrol, a kind of speed from the late 70s, and that he experiences in taking this drug a feeling that he refers to as doubling. And I think readers of Dostoevsky, as David was himself, uh, will recognize that the, the doubling becomes a persistent theme in the book as a whole. And so I think David Foster Wallace, the character, recurs again and again throughout on all the subsidiary characters. I'm talking about the new book, by David Foster Wallace, The Pale King. It's published by Little Brown. It's edited by David's more than half his writing life editor, Michael Peach. The book is very funny. It's very lovingly assembled. That is to say, you can read this book, and to my mind, it's better than most of the books that are being published right now, even though David didn't live to polish it, to finish it. This is not the book we would read if David were alive, but we have it. We get to read it. My guests with me are Rick Moody and David Lipsky. He's the author of the terrific, although of course you end up becoming yourself, A Road Trip with David Foster Wallace, which is, I think, the first book to give us a sense of what it was like to be and to be with David Foster Wallace. Did you like the book? One thing that this book is about in the way that all the best books are are about is it's about what it feels like to be alive. Uh, David said a great thing to me when we were driving around. He said that he didn't think that writers had more capacity than other people. What they had was the luxury. He said that, that they might be more compelling in their confusion. But, that they, <laughs> <laughs> but they had the... Uh, the luxury to sit and, and make fists and think about really hard about what most of us only have time to think about kind of for a little while and then if the writer does their job properly, they remind the reader of stuff the reader's been aware of all along. And when a book is really operating well, you know, the plot and even the characters are just ways to move you to these moments of illuminations about how the sun feels on the back of your neck or how it feels to be speaking to another person or how it feels to be trying to decide how you want to live. And that's what always brings me to, to David as a writer. I don't think anyone did that better than he did. And, of course, that is 
what's on every page of this new book. And my other guest is Rick Moody. He's the author of Four Fingers of Death, which I think is a terrific recent novel. I would like to say easily his best, but it's not fair. I like so many of the others. When you were reading, Rick, were you, well, it uncannily captures his voice and presence. Mm. Did you feel, as I did, like you were with him? I did. And to me, that's the great value of this book. I actually think it's it's a great novel. I think it's maybe David's best book after Infinite Jest, from my point of view. I mean, this is we're saying this on the pub date, so we're we're not coming at it with you know years of hindsight. But I think it's pretty extraordinary. But what I most wanted in anticipating the book, as somebody who is a passionate reader of his work, was just to hear that voice again. And I think what Michael Peach has done that's so remarkable is to utterly conceal whatever editorial work he had to do on the prose to such a degree that it's impossible to locate. As far as I can tell, what we have is the voice of the author undiluted. And uh, since everybody loves that voice, since that's the voice of this generation, of my generation of writers, uh, what a great thing to have it back with us and to be able to engage with it again. You know, I think of it as not only his generation of writers, but his generation of readers, of livers. It's somehow like J.D. Salinger. He captures a whole way of living for a generation of people whose perhaps ability to respond to tragedy is to say, whatever. And David took it as his job to reconnect that comment, whatever, to the feelings that make you want to absent yourself mm. from what you're being told. Um, the question for David, I think, is how to be human again. I think it's also how do I stay young? Because the moment you go into the IRS, these characters are preternaturally old. Their um, motto might as well be like the motto in the section that Rick read. He says about the insects, all business, all the time. <laughs> um, what is it like to be all business all the time? And haven't we become all business all the time? I mean, you know, with the ability to be on the phone wherever we go, with our computers, wherever we are, working all the time. And, you know, I think that has become how do you stay young when it's all business all the time, when the sadness and monotony of daily life, because I would say that our time has legitimized monotony and sadness and made it a constant part of our lives, very much like the thrum of insects. Um, tell me what you think of that, David. Uh, I think physical fitness is great as a way to keep young, you know, in whatever, whatever profession you're in or whatever state we're being listened to in now. Um, I love what you were saying about uh, kind of how modern life diminishes our sense that we as people are important, and that is what literature reminds us of the reverse. And, of course, what this book is excellent at doing and what I really think as a reader I always thought uh, of as David's 
sort of his program as a, as a writer of nonfiction as a fiction. You know, you have all these big events outside your life that, that kind of remind you without having to actually say it. They're like big older brothers looking down and saying, okay, what you're feeling when you're walking down a corridor when you're thinking about calling someone you're in love with or when you're thinking about trying to avoid being, you know, griped at by your boss, that's not terribly important. And then, of course, you have the sense that since everyone else is experiencing similar things, you maybe also should keep your mouth shut, that that would be in good taste. Um, and what David's work, because David is a great combination, right? He's incredibly smart about the systems that we're all in. And he is then, and then he has another, he has another part of his game as a, as a writer, which is he's brilliant on sensory stuff. Don't you think, Rick? I mean, there's no one, there's an opening part to this book, which is about a guy just coming out on an airplane. It's the opening right after what Rick stopped reading at the point of, at the, at the start of the book. It's incredibly brilliant. And it's just a man on an airplane. Yeah. And then, of course, he is in the Chris Vogel section. He gives the dignity back to you of how you try to adjust your plans and your sense of what, how you want people to respond to you with what the plans of the world are for you and how people do respond to you. And that is what writing has to be about. And when someone does it the way David does it in this book, it's just the greatest thriller. It reminds you that to be alive is meaningful and important and charming and funny and thrilling. Even in really disagreeable circumstances. I mean, a virtuosic fact this book, from a novel writing point of view, you can think of no milieu that would be harder to humanize just at the beginning of the project than the IRS. He hasn't picked a boring business. He's picked <laughs> the quintessence of boring business. There's no more boring place to go. And one of the achievements of the book is that it makes that milieu in not only incredibly funny, but also, and especially in the Chris Vogel passage, I think, uh, full of pathos. I mean, that section is remarkable for the way that it starts out kind of funny and jokey and moves swiftly into a kind of epiphanic enlargement about this character and his decision to go work for the IRS that makes you almost feel like I'd sign up too. <laughs> I'm Michael Silverblatt. You're listening to Bookworm talking more about The Pale King by David Foster Wallace after this short break. Silverblatt. I'm talking about the new book by David Foster Wallace, The Pale King. My guests with me are Rick Moody and David Lipsky. The Pale King is an event that many of us have waited and wondered about. Would we get to see it? It could easily. The pages have been just parked somewhere in a university library. Instead, Little Brown chose to publish it. Uh, Rick, do you think are you in agreement? Should the book have been published? Oh, yeah. I don't have any hesitation on that point. I mean, Bonnie Nadella's agent said that after his death, she said something like it was all but that he put a spotlight on the manuscript to make sure they would find it. So I sort of feel like he knew that there was a lot in this that was very near completion. Uh, and so I don't think it's the kind of case at all it's not like other posthumous manuscripts, The Last Tycoon, let's say, where 
they're really trying to cobble something together that didn't have a shape. This seems to have shape and energy and forward movement. And as such, I think it's, it's a manuscript that, while not complete, has all the charm of a David Foster Wallace manuscript. And it would be criminal if it hadn't been published. Really. The last tycoon by F. Scott Fitzgerald is one of the famous published books that were not officially signed on. Others include, well, several of the novels of Kafka, who asked his friend Max Broad to burn them, and a recent case, poems by Elizabeth Bishop, who's one of our famous perfectionist poets, who surely would not, living, have allowed her drafts to go into the world. We're, I think, agreed. We want the Kafka. We want the Fitzgerald, and we sympathize with the people who feel that Elizabeth has been slighted, but we want the poems. What do you think we do? What what about your own posthumous works? How would you feel? (laughs) I'm so not territorial. I say they can have out all that stuff if anyone wants it, you know. How about you, David? Um, I find this topic about my posthumous works morbid. (laughs) But I did want to say that um, that you know, there's a there's a longer tradition of posthumous works than 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 people remember when they um when they begin talking about a new one. And this is a book that that our best writer was working on for three or four years, if not quite a bit longer. But of course, in the last century, in the twentieth century, probably the what a lot of people think is the best novel of that of that century, uh, *Remnants of Things Past* by Proust, seven volumes. Yeah, last last three volumes are published two, three, four years after his death. And of course, if you go back to when books started. You know, Shakespeare's plays are collected uh, seven years after his death. He has no editorial input. He doesn't know which drafts they're using. They're using players' copies, et cetera. So we have a prouder tradition of books that weren't, where the final edit wasn't approved, he didn't, where, the, where the writer didn't get final cut, than, uh, than people sometimes remember. Now, one of the things that people want of the novel is that it tells us how we live and about our time. And this is one of the American novels that wants to talk about late-stage industrial capitalism. It's almost as if a sign went up, forbidden. And so, as such, as you're reading it, it feels like a seditious book, yeah? Hmm. It's actually one of the most exciting features of the book to me, Michael, that it's tackling this capitalist material. I think it's so risky and so bold. And you don't think of David as being a political writer in a sort of tendentious way at all. But I do think the politics are in there. And in this book, they seem to be in there more so even than in some of the earlier work. Yeah, it's inextricably political, yeah. it seems to yeah. me, that you you can take the politics out of the boy, but <laughs> not out of the book. Yeah, And it's a thumb in the nose of those like me who get blamed for thinking of a novel as being primarily aesthetic because he is doing what people of his generation do. He's deconstructing the capitalist system. It's unmistakable. And as such, I think it's meant to be a drum that he's leading the band for the novel of the future, that he's talking to young novelists, young writers, young people, about recommitting themselves to political action, ecological action, personal action, that he's saying, yes, 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 by all means, I know that you had childhood incest, that you've suffered, and now 
make your suffering part of the collectivity of a community, of a citizenship, because that's the question. What is it like to be part of a country, a citizen, with other citizens? For me as a reader, the way that David suggests to young writers and to, to readers uh, and to people who, I hope people who are dedicated readers have the ear of, is that you can have that kind of action really by making them awake. Um, when he wrote when he wrote that long piece about Senator John McCain in 2000, when McCain seemed to be more of a maverick than he apparently has turned out to be, he began by talking about voting, but the last words are, try and stay awake. And I think one thing, and it's, and it's one thing that all the sections in this book really are about, the culture has developed delightful ways, sort of blissful ways of being deliciously unawake. You can be unawake when you're traveling. You can be unawake when you're home because there's great radio on, there's great TV on. You can be unawake now at your keyboard even when you're writing because there is delicious stuff, delicious news stuff, delicious news bites, delicious video everywhere. And all those things make you happy, but they don't make you awake. And it's um, what a great writer like Wallace does and what a, great, what a great book like this does is reminds you of the benefits of staying awake. And it's only when you're awake that you can actually do the kind of political stuff that Michael is talking about. I also sort of want to address the miraculous professional imposture that was involved in this undertaking, which is to say, David Foster Wallace appears to know a lot about accounting. And uh, in order to write this book, he must have studied untold hours, I think, to learn about all these arcane moments in the development of the United States tax code. If you were just going to write a book whose goal was to sort of make some tendentious position on taxation or the IRS or government bureaucracy or what have you, you would not be as relentlessly thorough about living inside the language of that community as he has been here. There are whole chapters in the book that are miraculous for the way in which he inhabits the community of these people. So that's part of its politics for me. Its politics are humanistic in the sense that Wherever you look in this, you know, reviled government bureaucracy, he finds people, uh, but he finds them in the tongues of their actual stations. You know, that's miraculous for me. He always sounds like David Foster Wallace. There's no doubt about that. But here, he's a David Foster Wallace who knows everything about the tax code. Yes, although David Foster Wallace knows that the famous quote about bureaucracy is that it is the parasite that's larger than its host. He enters the parasite and gives it human faces, not just one human face, and he writes another great novel along with two earlier great novels, Infinite Jest, Brief Interviews with Hideous Men, two great books of essays, Consider the Lobster and a Supposedly Fun Thing I'll Never Do Again, dead at the age of 46, dead three years ago. This is the year of the Pale King, and we salute it. We're grateful for it. I've been speaking to Rick Moody, novelist, David Lipsky, novelist, journalist, about the Pale King. Please respond to this show at our website at kcrw.com slash bookworm. I'm Michael Silverblatt. My 
Gratitude goes to the recording people at KSFR, to the Lannan Foundation, who brought us here to Santa Fe, where we could talk about David, to the people at Little Brown, who made available copies of the book before its publication date, so we could be the firstest with, I hope, the mostest. Join me again next time on Bookworm. I am a bookworm, he is a bookworm, she's a bookworm, we are all bookworms. Funds for Bookworm are provided in part by Lannan Foundation. This program is produced in the studios of KCRW Santa Monica. You can access archives of all Bookworm programs and podcasts, the most recent ones, at kcrw.com bookworm. The Bookworm themes were composed and performed by Ron and Russell Mayle of Sparks. I am a bookworm, he is a bookworm, she is a bookworm, we are a bookworm.